This is the Loaf Podcast. Ollie, this isn't like to actually use, is it? Or is it this is a test run? Oh, well, it's not to use anymore. Welcome back to the bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're very lucky to be hosting Graham Lasso, a former professional footballer who won the Premier League in the 1990s with the Blackburn Rovers, which is pretty amazing because I certainly haven't heard of them. And he's had two stints at Chelsea. Uh, right now, he's a pundit working for the NBC, which is an American company giving coverage of the Premier League. Probably like explaining uh, maths to kids in kindergarten. I don't know. Americans aren't amazing with football. Love. Hi, Graham. Thank you for coming on. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you both for inviting me. No worries. We're really excited to have you on. We already just introduced you a little bit before you joined the call. We know you're a busy man. So we wanted to get it started. <laughs> No so, problem. I, I'll have to go back and listen to the introduction just to uh, to see uh, to see what sort of um, context you you put to my uh, to my background. But I'm sure it's uh, I'm sure it's very flattering. Oh yeah, we tried to be nice. We tried to be nice. <laughs> Good. I like the word try. Good. Oh yeah. Well, you you, you know what? You, you watch your back and you judge for yourself. You let us know. But I think I think we did you justice. Hopefully. So um, <laughs> we're just gonna get started with we have some like fun icebreakers we like to do with all our guests yeah um and i'm not sure if well we're the loaf podcast so just as a funny beginner we like to ask all our guests their favorite bread and we find out actually we actually find out quite a lot about a person so what's your favorite bread uh, my favorite bread well it's more sort of bread that we eat at the moment is sourdough brown sourdough and if we can get it sliced all the better but if it comes whole then we've got to do the manual labor ourselves so that's the bread of the moment. Ooh, Matthew Johnson told us the, the same thing, actually. Uh, sourdough, he said, well, as a 40-year-old living in, in London, you know, sourdough seems to be quite a classic answer. Yeah, yeah. It's very Middle England sourdough. It's almost artisan in, in, in the bread world. You know, it's mm. like, a, it says a lot about it. Best to be had with things like hummus and um, other, other sort of spreadable organic Exactly. Um, yeah. Non-GMO, this and that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so um, this obviously people at the time of interview will have already passed at uh, the time this posted, but I don't know if you watched the England-Nigeria game today in the Women's World Cup earlier. I saw some of it. I did watch some of it. I could see the way it was going and uh, and had some other things I had to do, and I thought that England would, would nick it as opposed to uh, win on penalties. But... Uh, all, all, all good in the sense that you know every tournament you play in, there's going to be a penalty shootout if you get to the latter stages. So winning one yeah. pretty early on, I think, is quite good for the confidence. Yeah, I don't know if you saw um, Lauren James, the controversy there. I did, I did, and uh, I thought it was a red card, um, and uh, and I'm sure she accepts that. She'll be disappointed in terms of uh, when you get sent off, and I was sent off three times in my career. Um, it's frustrating and you feel really angry with yourself because you, you know you've let yourself down but also that you've let your teammates down thankfully for her it didn't cost them in terms of getting through but uh, it's it's difficult when you live in such an emotional sort of situation um, when you're playing sport um, that, that sometimes you know the reaction is the wrong reaction and obviously that was today yeah it's funny it's funny you bring that up because Gary Lineker early today he compared that to Beckham in 1998, which was a match that you were at, I think. When he Gary Lineker compared that to David Beckham getting sent off in 1998. 
Yeah. What you say? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's um. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't agree? Maybe not quite the same, but you know, he said that. So. Well, well, in the fact that she reacted to a situation and got sent off in a football match that was a World Cup, um, then yes, but in every other way, probably not. But anyway, that's that's scary. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I was wondering what you, um, who your favorite lioness was actually. Me, um, yeah. well, James, I really like her actually. Obviously, Reese, her, her brother, and just watching them sort of, well, him growing up as a young player. Um, I, I saw him from the age of probably 15, 16, making his way through, and and um, his sister was always um, talked about in terms of the, the you know developing the women's side of the game as well. So I would say her. But yeah, I, I think with the with the women's team for me, I, I think they're all. What's great is that they all seem to have their own um, their own not position on the pitch, but their own sort of identity. Um, and it doesn't feel that it's so much just heroes. I mean, Lucy Bronze obviously has been incredible for England from from the, the women's game perspective and has done really well. But I think that because they're they're evolving and developing really quickly and people are getting to know them quite quickly. Um, it's good to see that all of their personalities and, and all of their identities, I think, are sort of really collective rather than just, um, you know, necessarily star names. So that's, uh, that's important, I think, um, because there's, you know, there's a long way for the women's game to go in, in, and, and it's got a lot of big decisions ahead of it. So the better they can do at the top of that pyramid, I think the more it pulls the, they're going through yeah i mean i think we're definitely seeing the beginning of it taking off following the euros and stuff people are properly properly paying attention to it now at least in england yeah yeah and there's going to be lots of challenges along the way because it's uh you know it's a very young um uh, part of, of football in terms of the professional and the elite side of it so building those foundations is really really important to make it um, uh, make it really sustainable because every sport has ups and downs in terms of popularity, success, competition, pressures, um, and, and those bumps in the road are going to be much easier to deal with if, if there's a, a, the right trajectory in terms of the development across the mm -hmm. women's game. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Reese James coming up through what I assume was the Chelsea Academy younger in his career. It must have been quite a different path for you when you were younger, coming from Jersey, um, and the academy system wasn't so set up. So do you want to just talk us through a little bit, the beginning of your career, how you came to come into professional football and stuff? Yeah, I, I was, I think everybody has their own, um, their own tale to tell once they've got to the, you know, to the top of, of any particular profession. Um, everyone has an individual story. Mine was, you know, quite unique in some ways that, you know, growing up in Jersey and playing amateur football till I was 18. Uh, didn't sign as an apprentice, um, signed as straight as a professional um, at, at Chelsea, aged uh, 18, after I'd uh, sat my A-levels um, and was fortunate enough to get a trial in between sitting my A-levels and looking at sort of going to university and, and um, had a trial at Chelsea, ran around like a complete idiot for a, a week and just gave everything and um, was fortunate enough to be offered a... Um, a contract, very basic contract, but something that, you know, I was really excited about. In terms of the, you know, the academy development, um, you, you had apprentices and you had youth training scheme, you had all different things that sort of 
players have been involved with from a much younger age. Um, so I was always considered very, you know, very much a late developer in that sense. And coming to Chelsea was difficult because I didn't really fit in with any particular group. I wasn't an apprentice, but I certainly wasn't a professional footballer either. So, so it, that was challenging. And, and really, you know, as much as I loved football and played, um, played with a real passion and determination, desire to always get better. Starting a professional career was a very different experience. It was something that really, I, I didn't, I don't think anything could, could necessarily prepare you for. Um, and, and it threw up a lot of, you know, a lot of complications on the way about how I sort of, um, how I did or didn't fit in with, with the group, how, how you sort of deal with the dynamic of, professional sport where there's people, you know, people are paying their mortgages and, you know, it's someone's livelihood. And I'd never experienced that. Football had always been, you know, something that people did in their spare time rather than people did as a job. Um, and that, that, that creates a, a totally different dynamic within a, within a group of players and within a team. And adjusting to that was, was challenging because I was very naive, very young, um, and didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of life experience. So I had to learn. Very quickly, whilst also, yeah, you know, trying to improve every day as a football player. That's that's really interesting. Oli and I were speaking just earlier about how many footballers, after they retire, something like ten years after they retire, still struggle so much with mm. with money and earning money because not everyone earns the same wage as Messi and Ronaldo and these Chelsea footballers. Yeah, and and look, there's. There's lots of different, um, uh, I suppose, traps and, and lots of different um, problems that, that people find themselves in. And that's not just exclusive to, to footballers, obviously. <coughs> um, but yeah, people, you know, the, 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 the money that players get at a young age um, can, can often create a huge set of problems and unforeseen situations unforeseen by them because they've got no experience and it's very easy to trust the wrong people. Um, it's very easy to think short term. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And, and not sort of approach everything with a bit of, um, not cynicism, but suspicion, certainly. And, 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 you know, I learned very quickly that, that I had to, um, really understand what people's motives were and, and at the same time understand the value of money. Um, you know, I was earning more than my friends, um, who majority were students. Um, I bought my first flat when I was 20, probably. Um, uh, you know, I was, I had a pension when I was 19. Um, I had a savings plan, you know, in my early 20s. So all of these things that you wouldn't even dream about doing as a, as a 20 year old in most walks of life. Um, you know, you have to really start that as a, as a young player. I sound like I'm sort of giving some sort of careers advice. <laughs> but, but in the end, it's, you know, to trust the people around you is, is quite often the worst thing you can do. And, and that, that, that can often be, you know, people really close to you. Um, so, so taking, taking time to understand the boring part of, of, of sort of being successful and, and looking at how to best um, protect yourself and ensure yourself against sort of the future um, is absolutely vital. Because as you rightly say, Lucas, there's, you know, most players won't earn enough money to just be able to 
put their feet up in their early 30s or mid-30s and not have to work again. And equally, it's, it's, not, it's not good for you psychologically. It's not good for anybody to just feel they don't have any motivation to get up and to, to work, particularly at such a young age. So there's a lot of things that, that clubs try to do. Um, I think, you know, I, th- I think really that part of the, the sport still needs um, professionalizing more and, and better, um, better services for, for players. But in the end, you know, once they're considered adults, they make their own decisions. If they trust the people around them that are, uh, haven't got their best interests at heart, then unfortunately they find out the hard way. Did you not find that you had much support with that kind of thing? Was there like advisors and stuff at the teams you played at or not so much? Um, I was, I just think I was always very aware. I think, you know, being 18, 19 um, and, and sort of coming into to, to the profession, I, I, I suppose I, I took responsibility for myself more than anyone else. And, and there wasn't a great support network out there at all, but <clears throat> certainly some of the senior professionals um, giving you giving you their advice, I listened to that. Um, you know, from the good professionals that were were at Chelsea. Um, but equally, you know, there might be other professionals that are sort of saying, "Oh, you should do this or you should do that." But you know, you've got to work out very quickly whether you know what their motivation is for that, what their motives are, and whether or not they're they're doing it because you know the agents told them to try and get you to join a particular agency or what have you. So. I don't know. I suppose I was always very good at trusting my own instincts and, and being able to step outside the, the sort of the profession and just look at look at life in a in a in a way that that helped me make better decisions. Um, and 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 sort of I was always very what should we say? I, I was I was very um, I don't want to say pessimistic, but um, trying to be realistic about the chances of making it as a football player and having a long career, I didn't take it for granted. So I was always ensuring myself against that eventuality, not just from a financial point of view, but also, you know, I kept up other interests well outside of football because I never knew when it was going to end. And I mean, a case in point was I broke my ankle horrendously when I was playing for Blackburn the Christmas before Euro 96. And I was on this fantastic sort of professional trajectory, got into the England side, was playing every game, we had the Euros in, in England, and then the Christmas before, freak injury and ended up, you know, my whole foot facing the wrong way. So that could have easily been the end of my career in my mid-20s. So, you know, being aware of that, but not letting it distract you from your your ambitions um, is is quite an important thing to do. I suppose you're quite different to Mbappe then in that regard. Yeah, he's a very good football player and he's earning a lot of money. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> no, and more in the sense that, more in the sense that I suppose, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I, yeah look, go ahead. Every player is different and every, you know, I, I think one of the things I've noticed over the years is that, the, and again, it's not just football, um, it's this sort of high performance elite athlete environment where you can imagine everybody doing whatever they can. For the for the individual athletes, in order to allow them just to focus on competing and being the best they can, and all of those things, which is you know, to, it all comes from a good place. But if you take away somebody's independence and don't allow them to take responsibility for themselves, then I think you end up with problems. Um, 
and 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 that for me is quite self-evident. So part of the duty of care of looking after an athlete is to also let them look after themselves. So an example of that when I was playing was that we used to have to give our passports in at the beginning of each season <clears throat> to the club because they were concerned that some players um, wouldn't remember to take their passports with them when we played in European <laughs> competitions. So I point blankly refused that because I felt that that was me losing my sanity if I couldn't remember to bring my passport when I was getting on an aeroplane to go overseas. <laughs> so, so I can understand why, you know, the, 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 um, the people that were organizing our travel and, and, and people around the club want players to do that. But that for me is the, the beginning of the end of independence and therefore you know, when you do stop playing, when you come out of that bubble, you know, who do you rely on to remember your passport when you're going on holiday, when you've got your own kids? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be sometimes, but, but you know, it's, uh, it was for me, it was a, a line in the sand that I probably wasn't prepared to cross. Fair enough. I mean, you, you have this specific mentality, it seems, but you're also, I believe, doing some pundit work in, um, in America with NBC. I was wondering, how different that culture is over there? Um, yeah, I've been working for NBC for 10 years now. So they bought the rights to to um, to show the, the Premier League in the US um, 10 years ago. We're coming to our 11th year. Fantastic relationship with the Premier League. Now, that's a big part of the Premier League success story is the, uh, the selling of international broadcast rights all over the world. So... You know, we at NBC spent $2.6 billion for a six-year wow. um, deal with the NBC, of which we're in our second year of a six-year cycle. So that's just show the game. You do get some other bits and pieces with that, but effectively, you know, that's that's to show to be the, the um, you know, the broadcast partner for the Premier League in the US. And so I work as a co-commentator, or as they say in the US, colour analyst. That sounds <laughs> But, you know, so I'm meant to bring colour to the broadcast, but I don't know. I think it's more black and white than colour. <laughs> Very interesting. I mean, um, it's um, there's a lot going around about you know these kind of anecdotes about American football. It's all a little bit in jest as well sometimes. So I I saw a funny anecdote lately about how they called Messi the captain of the MLS. I was wondering how much you had to dumb down your commentary for an American audience. <laughs> well, thankfully, NBC. Um, and, and the and the US audience is is far more uh, sophisticated than maybe the odd example um, that you see, you know, on social media. That there's a, you know, the, the two big things that that I've found is the professionalism um, of, of NBC and their and the way they they respect the game and value the game. Um, and the second thing is the knowledge of the of, of the audience. Um, of course, the way. Americans take their sport and um, the way they enjoy their sport, the way they support it, um, the way they engage with it is different to how our fans engage with football to some extent. Um, and, and we're sort of going through this sort of crossover now of, of, of sort of, um, you know, there's a lot more US fans. Every single game we commentate at. So I go to the matches. So I'm at Burnley, Man City um, on Friday. I'm at Newcastle Saturday, Chelsea Sunday. And then Manchester Monday, we've got this crazy weekend. We don't normally do that many games in that many days, but, but the studio are coming over from the US. So it's going to be, um, you know, a, a really fascinating opening weekend. 
But every single game you go to, you'll have people that have flown over with their families generally to, um, to, to a Premier League game and are, and, are, and are taking it in. They might take in two or three matches and because it's a long way and it's an expensive trip. But, but there's a committed core of, of fans now in the US. Um, and there's a really interesting demographic around families because time difference quite often, you know, they're waking up to, to our game. And, um, and so we do these, we have this sort of program called Premier League mornings. Um, and it, and it's just generated this whole culture around the Premier League. So of course it's different. Um, but it's, it's the right different. If that makes sense, it's, 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 again, I'm a great believer in authenticity. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel as comfortable if every US fan was trying to be like every Premier League fan that, that goes to his home or her home team every weekend. That it's a different, there's a different take on it. So, so for us, it's all about doing the best job we can. And, and you know, we, people always say, do you call it soccer? Do you call it football? We call it football because that's what we call it. We, we, you know, we speak in English terms, of course, and, 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 and occasionally there's, you know, there's moments where there's a lost in translation, um, with, with certain things that, that we say and how interpreted, but, you know, that's, that's all part of the, um, the cultural divide. Might have the same language, but, but we use it differently. So, um, so it's interesting. Yeah. So I, I don't think I could commentate for anyone if I was being asked to sort of, Call it the upper left ninety, as they call the top left. DK. <laughs> so that's you know, Americans want to do that at the in the in the MLS. Good luck, but I certainly wouldn't be doing that either here or there. <laughs> it's nice to see the development also in the US, especially with the national team. I'm a I'm a supporter of Dortmund, so with Giovanni Reina there, Christian Pulisic used to play for Dortmund. It's nice to see the the homegrown talent as well. Yeah, and again, you know, we were speaking about the women's game earlier, the success of um, football in the US, um, the professional, um, development of, of young players and, and, and developing a successful league, it has to be done in a, in a sort of a multi, multi-directional way in the sense that, you know, you, you, to, to, you've got to stop, you know, have the grassroots and the coaching and the, the pathways for, for players. Um, you've also got to have the, the opportunity for players to leave. To develop, to then come back, maybe same with coaches, um, and and I think the Premier League was seen potentially by by some as a as a sort of a distraction or or a an alternative to um, US football MLS, um, but actually it's it, it works really well together. Um, there's great synergy there, and, and if we say you know if we accept that the Premier League is the best, most entertaining football. At club level in the world, then why not use that as your benchmark for your own development? And you know, the, the, the great thing about the US and, and their commitment to anything is that once they, once they decide they're going to do something, they do it really well. They support it. They get behind it. They invest in it and, and they, you know, they do it very, very thoroughly. And so, you know, you look across all the Olympic sports, you look across, um, you know, the development of the women's game in the US over a 30-year period, um, how successful that has been on the global stage. Um, and, and I think that's what we're starting to see with the men's game as well, is these younger players being the sort of the standard bearers for, um, for, for the US um, sort of homegrown program. 
and and it gives players something to believe in and something to follow. Uh, and I think that again, that's that's really important for for, for a lot of sports people. They, it helps them when they've got someone that's already done it that they can look at and use as an example, and and then that completes that that circle um, of support back into young talent. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it seems to be growing so much. Like they have Messi going over now, but it's also growing quite a lot in Saudi Arabia as well. Of course, there's all these big controversial transfers recently. Ronaldo kind of started a movement. You've got Jordan Henderson has just recently confirmed a move. Do you see Saudi Arabia growing as much? Like, wh- how much do you see the actual future of it? Do you think it's something that could actually pick up quite a lot? Well, I mean, the impacts are enormous and, and the, the financial clout of the, of the country and the way they've done it in such a coordinated way in a, in a short period of time. It's caught everyone by surprise, I think. And um, the market, if you call it that, has to react so it either has to compete or it, or it has to settle down at some point. Um, and I, I think that for me, what I've said, the whole conversation we've had so far is, is about sustainability. Um, you know, to build, to build something that's sustainable is the only way of ensuring sort of riding through the ups and downs of it and, 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 and ultimately succeeding. Um, I think, you know, they've come in and they're a massive disruptor. Um, because they've, as I said, they've, they've, they've created a market that, that people weren't really aware of and, and, and quite frankly can't compete with, um, with the numbers that, that, that they're sort of, um, that are being touted around. I, I think it's really important not to blame individual players as well. Um, I, I would always be concerned that the player is driving the, the move, not, not the agent or, or the club, the, you know, another club. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done around the tran- uh, transparency around some of these moves because, you know, these Saudi clubs, PIF, the investment fund, um, you know, they've got links with other European clubs. Um, and so some of these transfers potentially could be seen as, as sort of moving from club A to club B with a, with a common link in between, which is the Saudi investment fund. So I think, I think there's going to be some work to be done around that transparency. Um, can it establish itself as a league? Um, maybe. Um, but without the other pillars to that, um, to that development strategy, I, I don't think top down works. You know, the, the, the US tried it for many years, didn't they? We, likes of Pele and George Best went out in the seventies, big stars, you know, as big as, Messi and Ronaldo going out there, but because there was nothing that underpinned it, it was just superficial and, 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 you know, just, um, blew over in, in, in quite a quick time. So I, I suppose, you know, without knowing what the motivation is for Saudi Arabia in terms of what their ambitions are around, um, having a serious league and developing their, their football, um, you know, it's, it remains to be seen, but certainly it's caused a massive, a massive stir in European and world football because, you know, suddenly players and the inflation around players' salaries and transfers or particularly salaries is just, you know, it's just not just one level. It's, you know, five, ten times what, what people would necessarily would expect to get paid. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting you talk about the Saudi link. I guess I didn't even really think about that, but there's so much investment in European football even there. And I guess that does take away the responsibility for those players a bit. But I don't know what you think, because most of the criticism online 
really has been directed to those players. So like, for example, yeah. with Jordan Henderson, yeah. I just mentioned, he was like wearing the pride armband quite recently. And then now he's going to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Do, you, do you think there is any element of culpability there or, you know, I mean, it's a huge amount of well, money. I, I think it's, I think it's easy to, um, it's very easy to draw a line of, of, of contradiction, of course, you know, and, and very easy to accuse someone of hypocrisy and, and what have you. For me, it's, it's, it, it is difficult because ultimately, you know, if we were to pull back the curtain on a lot of investments in this country, if we were to look at our foreign trade, um, arms, Trade deals, um, um, you know, link, military links, um, politics. I, I think when you start scratching the surface, we, we would all feel compromised quite quickly. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you shouldn't stand up for what you believe in. And if you believe in something enough, then of course that would always come between you and a financial decision. If you can afford to make that financial decision. Um, but I don't think it's fair to criticise somebody for all the good they've done because of the fact that they've they've done something that's perceived as as contradictory. I think you you have to look at is there any good that can come from that person's involvement. So if we're talking about Jordan Henderson, what good can he do, and how can he improve um, the dialogue? Shall we say between those people that are upset with him um, and and his new employers, um, and that's a challenge. I think I think it's very easy for us to sit here on our moral high high ground and and say, well, I wouldn't do that. But you know, if you're put in that situation, depending on your circumstances, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. And um, I do I do find it a challenge, but it's going to be one that it's going to be one that keeps coming back because. You know, we have a standard of accountability. In, well, in theory, I don't know. I don't know if we do so much at the moment with the government we've got in charge. Um, but you know, we've 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 set very high standards in many ways over over decades, and and we've always worked hard to defend you know human rights and the way we treat people and equality. And of course, that's that's vital um, for us to do that. Um, but it's also important that we help people and other countries along that journey. I think that is something that is, you know, is a challenge. Um, and, and it's, you know, for me, it's something I have to think about when I go and work in, in countries or work in certain places. Do I, do I take the work because I think I can make a difference or do I boycott? Um, you know, when I was growing up, there was a, a big boycott in South Africa because of um, apartheid. But that was a, a global boycott of, of, of and companies were blacklisted. Um, sports people weren't allowed to travel there. You know, I, I, I raised money for the ANC. They were considered a terrorist organization at the time, but they're, you know, they're, they were freedom fighters. So, if, if, you know, everyone's perception is different. And, and, and I think that, I think that you can work together to, to, create an outcome that you want rather than necessarily having having to sign up to the same um, terms of engagement. Um, so, you know, let, let, let's see how it plays out. Let's see how it plays out. <clears throat> yeah, I, I suppose it's similar to this debate with Qatar because some people argue 
we're bringing maybe more progressive ideas to the country. Then others say it's a step backwards. We're, we're, we're doing so much with women's football, bringing it to the forefront. And even with reducing homophobia, for example, I'm, I'm sure that you can also, you have that firsthand experience with homophobic abuse hurled at you. And some people say that now um, having this focus put on Saudi Arabia, where arguably human rights are far less in perhaps less in the forefront and perhaps less controlled that it is a step backwards for football. Yeah. And, and again, that's the debate. And, and for me, it was like the Qatar world cup, you know, that, that shouldn't be down to players um, defending or, you know, um, boycotting that, that tournament. It, that, that's governing body stuff. They have to set the standards. So whether it's FIFA, UEFA, um, you know, La Liga in Spain, Bundesliga, Premier League, whoever, they have to set the standards and the players shouldn't be put in a position, I don't think, where they're exposed to some of these um, very complicated, um, very sensitive um, discussions. Um, obviously, players going to Saudi Arabia to play, that's, that's, a, you know, that's their individual choice. Um, but, you know, if, if we were... If we were saying to any country, you, you can only play in our competitions if you meet these standards, human rights standards, equality standards. Once you meet those standards, you can enter our competitions. That would take the whole discussion off the table. And that's about, that's leadership. That's what it's, that's what it requires. You know, the, the, the players often find, and I felt particularly sorry for them during the Qatar World Cup because ultimately, you know, People were put in very, very difficult positions without any real knowledge or tools to know how to handle um, those complicated issues. You know, we're we're talking about it now, and we're dancing around bits of it bit of, of the conversation because it's because it's complex. Um, so for me, there's a there's a there's a whole piece of work to do about you know what football expects expects of a participant within football. We've got very clear guidelines in England, what's expected. Um, and, you know, they'll get challenged, those guidelines, every so often. You know, Black Lives Matters, when that came up, that was a big challenge for, um, you know, for the governing bodies, whether it was the Premier League or the FA. I mean, even, even players wearing a poppy was challenged because it was seen as a political symbol um, because of the Second World War. And that was, that was a challenge by, uh, by FIFA because it didn't meet their their sort of guidelines on, um, you know, wearing political, um, symbols. So it's not, it's not easy and there's going to be more and more complications, I think. So it's, it's increasingly important and incumbent on governing bodies to get their house in order. But, you know, don't ask me how much confidence I have in FIFA because <laughs> the answer would be <laughs> not a huge amount again at the current, in the current sort of, um, in the current showing. That's, that's fair enough. I was wondering from that, if you do think things have gotten in general better, how better have they got? And I was wondering if you could relate that maybe to your experience as a footballer, because I suppose that is something that changed quite rapidly, um, especially with relation to, to homophobia on football. We're interviewing Josh Cavallo tomorrow, actually. And uh, I don't know if you know Thomas Beattie, but I debated with him in the Oxford Union. And these are people who have brought a lot of change to the discussion around um, homosexuality and football. I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. 
Yeah, but obviously, you know, I spent much of my career having homophobic abuse hurled at me. Um, and, and, you know, in a, in a way, the fact I'm not gay made it more difficult because I was always strong enough to stand up for myself. But to say I'm, that's really offensive, but by the way, I'm not gay, it sort of conf- confuses the message a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I had absolutely no support whatsoever. People buried their head in the sand. Other people made it worse for me. Um, people like Gordon Taylor, who was the chairman of the PFA for many years, you know, he made, he made my life worse despite years later saying he was a, you know, huge supporter of equality and he always did everything he could to defend people. Um, I've got, had absolutely no experience of that whatsoever when I was playing. Um, so in the end, yeah, to your point, Lucas, the, the, the environment's changed massively over, it's taken a long time. Um, but, but again, it, it, it involves and requires all the stakeholders to agree to a way forward. You can't have the FA doing their thing, the Premier League or the Football League doing their thing, the PFA doing their thing, um, individual players having to sort of, you know, um, deal with um, the the abuse themselves, um, and so and also the media. Media have big parts playing this as well. Um, so you know, in the in the sort of nineties and early two thousands, when I was going through all of that, there was very little support um, for, for 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 people like me um, who were going through that. Um, you know, there was a lot more work, thankfully, as being done. I don't mean thankfully, there was a lot more work being done in one area, but you know, around the race, the discrimination, racial discrimination, that was starting to get um, really recognised and taken far more seriously. Um, organisations like Kick It Out and, and organisations such as that um, getting involved. And, you know, again, you've got government involvement necessary as well. Legislation needed to be put in place to to give the police and the authorities the power to be able to, 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 to deal with people. Um, so I worked really hard with the FA for many, many years um, around um, the equality work that they've done. There was a board that set up that I was involved with called the Inclusion Advisory Board, um, working again with all the um, stakeholders, um, Stonewall and Kick It Out and various other um, stakeholders that, that um, you know, LGBTQ um, uh, groups, um, that helped us as well. And thankfully, over, over a period, long period of time, there's been, you know, there's been a big change, a big shift in mindset. And education is often at the forefront of that. People use words often without thinking of the meaning behind them. And it's very easy for people to, to brush something off as a, as a, as a flipping comment or a put down without realizing the context. And I think that that's, that's helped. Um, enormously change the sort of the sort of language we hear, but it's always going to be a challenge because there's always going to be a group of people that want to push right to the limit and then beyond um, just to test. So you've got to be consistent. Um, best example for me is Brighton. We did a lot of work with Brighton. Um, you know, they were always seen as the as an easy target because of the big, you know, the big um, gay community, gay and lesbian community down in Brighton. And so there, any team, any f- fans of a team coming to Brighton would often, you know, be chant homophobic chants and such like. And Brighton worked really hard with the traveling, the visiting club, their own, um, their own people on the ground, stewards and such like. They 
went through a whole education program. They got support from the FA, promoted it. Again, it was bringing everyone together to, to deliver what was a really successful outcome. Um, and they were a great example for any other football club. You know, again, they're the benchmark for, for dealing with that sort of abuse. So, so I think, yeah, I, in, on the whole, I think we're, you know, so much further down the line in terms of positive news. I think it's good sometimes to step back and see the success because it's very, because there's always, there's always going to be a problem with something. So sometimes you need to step away and actually go, look, how far have we come? So everyone involved in that should be extremely proud. But, and it's always a but, there's, there's always going to be work um, to be done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's good. There's so many protections that are there now and so much work that's being done because mm-hmm. there's, su- there's such a parallel between, you know, the fans, like a lot of it is chance, right? And yeah. it just seems like a bit of banter when you're shouting it. And it's just like a quip that you do maybe once or twice. But for example, with you, you've said before that you almost considered quitting football. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obviously amazing that you didn't. You've had an amazing career. So I wanted to ask you actually what some of your maybe favorite moments from your career was, whether it's your goal in the World Cup or do you have any like big, big highlights which you would mention you always look back on? Yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's, there's a few. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a funny question in some ways because I sort of look at my career in wonder in terms of I wonder how I achieved it. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, to play, to have the privilege of playing for 18 years, having had, as I said, a, a huge injury and, and had to have two big operations on, on it in different times and to still manage over 500 matches. I think that in itself is my greatest achievement. You know, I played my whole career, I played 10 minutes outside the top flight in my whole career. And so, you know, again, those are milestones that I just think I'm really proud of in, in one sense. Um, I suppose on the, on the sort of success um, side of things, uh, you know, being part of successful teams always meant more to me than what I achieved individually. But being a, a big part of a team's success is where I feel most proud. So, you know, those three seasons we had at Blackburn um, from 93 to 95, where, you know, we, they got promoted in 93 and we finished fourth, second and first in three seasons, you know, competing against Manchester United team, which, you know, was arguably, you know, one of the best, if not the best group of players they had. Um, and we stopped them winning a treble of Premier Leagues, um, that, that first, you know, that first time round. So being part of that Blackburn team was, was just an incredible privilege. The honesty and the commitment we had to each other, to Kenny Dugleish, who was our coach and Ray Harford, who was the assistant. And the, you know, the backroom staff, the, the desire and determination and how galvanized we were, uh, you know, that, that's something to have seen and been part of that and to have, you know, felt it. You know, that, that for me was, you know, that was a real privilege because that was, that's what great teams are made of is that. And not many people get to be part of that and, and actually feel it themselves and do that day to day. Coming back to Chelsea and winning what we won at Chelsea, whether it's, you know, the, um, Cup Winners Cup, League Cup, Super Cup, um, FA Cup, you know, those, those, those moments when you look back, you realize, are, are, again, special moments because so many people have done well in their careers, but not so many people have 
you know, been in a position to, 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 to win trophies for their club. And, and so that, that in itself was, was, was an amazing part of my career. And, and the relationships I built up, particularly at Chelsea in my second spell were, you know, lifelong friendships. Um, and, and so they're, they're all really important things on a, on club level, international level, you know, clearly stepping out, um, at Wembley for your debut for the national team. You know, first Channel Islander to play for England and, you know, first person for Jersey to play for England, um, was a really proud moment and a milestone for me and my family. So that was sort of a big thanks to my dad, really. When I stepped out there, I was thinking about him every day, all the way up until, until the moment the whistle blew to start the match. So, you know, th- those are, yeah, those are a, a few moments that have been, um, you know, that really stand out to me and, and scoring against Brazil. Um, you know, the only goal I scored for England, but a 25 yard volley sort of is, you know, if you're going to score one goal, that's probably the, the right one to score. <laughs> yeah. Especially with your future wife in the game, I suppose. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. She, she presumed, she presumed that I did that every week. That was the, she was very quickly disappointed. When I told her, it was a, a rarity. Um, so, uh, yeah. Brilliant. I, I mean, winning the Premier League, that's amazing. That's beautiful the way you told it. It's something that Ollie, I, Harry Kane, it's, it's something we'll never experience. But I was, um, I was wondering from that with Blackburn winning the Premier League, I was wondering if, if that's still possible for, for smaller clubs. I mean, Leicester did it. Mm-hmm. And it sparked discussions. Is it harder to to win big trophies like that or to sustain it? Because Blackburn, they then sold their best players. Same with Leicester. Maris left. Um yep. and yeah, I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's there, there, there's there's different um there's different stages for anyone. And you know, Guardiola talks about this openly and spoke to him back end of last season about this specific thing as they were sort of trying to keep that um, momentum going after they'd won, you know, two back-to-back leagues and trying to win it for a third time is how how do you keep going um, and how do you reinvent yourself? Um, I think for a club like Blackburn and a club like Leicester, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the, they're smaller clubs um, and are less likely to to repeat their successes. So the best players tend to get picked off. Um, you know, Angola Conte was another one, wasn't he, from Leicester? And there was a, there was a, a lot of players left Blackburn that, that sort of after that success in the following year. And including myself, I left, you know, once I recovered from my injury, I left, um, in, in 97. Um, so it's, it is very difficult to, to, um, to go again and recreate a, the success if you're a smaller club, because I think it relies on everyone peaking. At the same time, and, and again, where Leicester and Blackburn maybe are comparable, and I don't like to compare them that often, but where they are comparable is that you know some of those players were playing really above their ability, and they just kept going, and they kept delivering, and kept delivering, and they had that wonderful spirit and that that freedom where they didn't tighten up, they kept going and kept delivering. As I said, some of them I think higher performances than anyone would have expected. Um, and we had a few of those players at Blackburn as well that were, you know, were sort of considered sort of decent football players, but not necessarily ones that would win you the Premier League. And the difficulty is once you've succeeded, you can't then get rid of players. You can't just say, well, look, actually, 
you know, well done for winning the league, but you weren't good enough. Um, and, and we didn't do that at Blackburn. We didn't sell maybe four or five players when we should have done and, and strengthen in those positions. And let, equally, Leicester were very loyal to a group of players that weren't going to be able to play at that level again. And then it, the disappointment when things start going wrong is is disproportionately high. You feel you really feel it because you feel it slipping away, and and so it becomes the, the tension and everything, the frustration, the anger. It, it, it all comes to the surface very quickly. It's the football equivalent of road rage. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I mean, it's kind of like this whole team spirit. Like you say, everyone comes together and there's this amazing performance. But that can only go on so long. And like you say, they could have maybe sold players, got better players. So I guess the only way really to keep that going, which is kind of unfair, unfortunately, is money. You see that with Newcastle. It's their first time mm-hmm. in the Champions League now. And ultimately, you know, there's better performances and stuff, but a lot of that will be just this huge amounts of investment. So I don't know what you yeah, think about the, that, whether it be like money caps or... Yeah, I mean, in terms of, I mean, the first bit of that, the Newcastle situation, you know, Eddie Howe, I think, is one of those very sensitive mass managers who who doesn't just, you know, even if he has a, a blank check or, you know, an empty checkbook that he can buy whoever he wants, he's not that kind of guy. He gets the, the spirit in the group. Um, I think the best managers generally do. I think they understand the group. And even, even Guardiola, one of my thing, one of the things I admire about, and there are many, many things I admire about, about him, obviously, but he does understand the dynamic of the dressing room. And, you know, they've got very deep squad, a very privileged group of players, but keeping those players happy and fresh and performance ready. So when they do come on, they perform, you know, that they, they react in a positive way. There's a real skill behind that. I think for Newcastle, I think they'll be, I don't think they'll build, um, out of sort of out of sync. I think they'll, they'll be very bespoke around who they bring in and, and how they fit into the, the wider group. Because what Eddie did in, in a brilliant way was, was the spirit that he brought into that group. And he made all of those players better, whether it's Almeron, um, better. Um, Dan Burns done really well. Cher's done well. Uh, Joe Linton probably is one of the best, you know, adaptations of a player from one coach to another. So, you know, that's down to good coaching, good, good, good dressing room culture and good values. In terms of the cap, uh, caps and, and such like, I think football is going to have to change in the end because you can't just keep pouring more and more money into the top expecting it to remain sustainable. So there's this hyperinflation around football at, at the top level. And I work. I work with a couple of consult for a couple of clubs and, and, and sit on the board in Mallorca with Real Mallorca, who are in La Liga. But we've been, you know, third division, second division, first, second, first, you know, bouncing around. We're now this is our third year in the first, which was the goal was to try and you know to build a base in, in the first division. But I've seen this inflation. Even if it happens at the top, it affects everyone else. Like the housing market, you know, once it starts going up, it just keeps going, and then you know people are borrowing more to spend because they're trying to keep up with everyone else. And and at some point, that's going to just blow up. It, it, it can't continue. But it, how you how you adjust to stop clubs spending, um, you know, these, these sums is really difficult. And salary caps, I think, sometimes punish, um, can punish teams that aren't well, that not because not they're not well run, but they just don't have the either the investment or the 
the turnover of, the, of bigger clubs. So that's one of the frustrations for me around the financial fair play model. It doesn't really reward you for running a well-run club. You just don't get punished for running a badly run club. So it's not, it's based on punitive action rather than reward. And, and it gets in the way of good investment sometimes. So, so if you can work out, that's your project. <laughs> if you can work out how to create a financial model that works for everyone in football, then you'll do really well. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's such a mess everywhere because Germany, for example, we've got the 50 plus one, which I love. But then Saudi Arabia have completely different FFP rules. And then you have Chelsea. I mean, you spoke about yeah. um, you spoke about with Chelsea this kind of keeping this balance between um, dynamics. But Chelsea now have spent 300 million in one transfer window. I was wondering what you, yeah. that, what you thought about that with Bowley. Oh, I think it's, I think it's um, um, irresponsible. I really do. Um, because the way they went about it as well, you know, they must have upset so many other clubs in doing what they did and the way they did it, and it completely backfired. So not that it would have been responsible if it worked, but it's just not understanding the dynamics and coming in, you know, with, with that sort of attitude, I think, is poor. Um, and, and in the end, it, 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 it damaged, it damaged the thing they were trying to fix way beyond what, what anything that they were prepared for. Um, because you can't put together a load of really talented players like that in, in, in the way that they didn't expect, expect performance and too many distractions, too many, too much, you know, too much of a bottleneck. So you see what they're doing now. They're going to clear out, um, um, to an extent and try to, try to change the culture. And that's tough. Because it's about people, it's not about money, and it's about values and um, creating a system that, that that is authentic and genuine and not tra- not just transactional. And unfortunately, you know, for me, Chelsea feels like just a transactional club. If you pay, if you pay to be part of it, you can be part of it. And if you don't, then um, then you know, even if you've got a lot to bring, you're not. Um, you, you wouldn't get through the filter, if that makes sense. So, you know, there's no doubting the talent that they've got. I think they've got a fantastic manager in in, um, in Maurizio and his team. Um, but, you know, they've got to take away all that noise. If they don't take away the noise, the problems are still going to be there. I think you're right. Yeah, I think there's kind of a overarching culture problem a little bit for Chelsea at the moment, which is going to take a while to sort, I think. So, I mean, I'd say at least they're, they're almost certainly out of the runnings for the Prem next season, but I don't know. Do you have your eye on anyone potentially you think is going to win? Um, well, I think I think the beauty of the Premier League, in theory, is that there's a lot of competition. That you've got teams that you look at and they excite you. Whether that's Arsenal, Liverpool always excite me. Like love watching Liverpool play. Obviously, Jurgen's way, Newcastle, um, uh, the obvious Manchester United. Evolution is, is, is progressing. Um, and, and City, um, who just continue to set newer and higher standards for everyone. And, and I always look at Manchester City and uh, it's, it's, this isn't a cop out. Um, but I always look at Manchester City and just think, you know, their greatest enemy is themselves because if they play like they played last year, then no one can touch them. They really can't. The, the, the style of football, the control, the quality, the, you know, just the, the level that they get to is, 
you know, better than anyone else by a long shot when they play that football. But if they, you know, if they have a blip, if they start and, and, you know, they, they had a few, they had a slower start this year, but then once they got going, they were unstoppable, weren't they? And Arsenal got their points early on in the season. Man City got theirs sort of midway on and then just continued. And, and, and Arsenal obviously, um, ran out of steam a little bit. Um, I think Arsenal are interesting because I don't, I don't see that as a negative that they didn't win the league last year, despite being that close. I see it as a positive. Um, you know, again, as I said, you know, Blackburn, we finished fourth, then we finished second, then we won the league in our third season. Liverpool, when they won the league, finished fourth, second and first to the three run-ups of it. So I think for Arsenal doing as well as they did last year, they probably, you know, they, they, they overachieved, I think, against the target. But I think they're going to be so much more prepared this year. Um, they've experienced that. They've got that, they've got that lived experience and, um, and, and can draw on that. And they're going to be angry because they're going to feel that they had it taken away from them later on. So if they can, if they can channel that in the right way, um, then, you know, I give them a better chance of getting closer to winning it next season. Um, but I think Newcastle are a really interesting team as well. And then look, Chelsea are, I don't have a huge amount of faith in them winning the Premier League next season, but they've got a heck of a team. You know, when you look at the players they've got, the quality they've got, you know, they're going to be a really hard team to, to play against. And they're going to be, I think they're going to be quite an exciting team. Um, so, you know, let's, let's see if they, if they get off to a good start and build confidence and momentum, then, you know, they, they, they could, they could certainly cause a few upsets, although I'm not expecting them to win the league. I've not even mentioned Tottenham, have I? <laughs> I think Tottenham will win the league next season. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of contenders next season. It's going to be super interesting. But um, I think that's pretty much all the time we have. So I wanted to end with maybe the most controversial question of all. <laughs> Been dividing football fans for a while, maybe more than Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or anything else. Messi or Ronaldo? Oh, Messi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched Argentina. That was quick, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll I was saying my wife's from Argentina, Oliver, so, uh, so it's, oh, right, okay. it's, it's always going to be messy. It has to yeah, be, doesn't it? In case she's listening from the other room. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I, I actually, they're both incredible players, but I prefer, I just prefer Messi. I just think he, you know, you, you could, you could go either one. I just think it's how they play and, um, you know, what, just, just what they give off as individuals. I just, I just think Messi is a, you know, just somebody that I enjoy watching that a little bit more and, and just think he's, you know, an incredible, uh, incredible talent like Ronaldo, but just has that little bit of extra personality that I like. Yeah, I agree. Well, this has been the Loaf podcast. Graham, thank you so much for coming on. I was wondering if you had any concluding thoughts before we wrap up. No, I want to say, obviously, thank you. You're looking for fishing for a compliment there, aren't you, Oliver? Well, well done. <laughs> I think you're both fantastic. You've got bright futures in whatever you choose to do. You've got a lot of books to read behind you, Oliver. And Lucas hasn't even shown his face. So he's, Lucas hasn't shown his face, so he's obviously not the shave or brush his hair. <laughs> no, I think uh, something's gone wrong with my camera, but uh, we did it. it. It thankfully ran out in the last moment, so everything should be good for YouTube. Good stuff. Anyway, yeah, thank you so much.
Oh, 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 oh,